The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Nehemiah chapter number 9 for our scripture reading this morning. Thank you so much for coming to worship with us here at Ambassador. Well, we are continuing our series going verse by verse through the book of Nehemiah entitled The God Who Builds. And we've seen how God did an incredible building work in the nation of Israel during some very difficult times and how it's when we're in our own personal difficult times that God often does his greatest building work in our lives. And this morning we're going to be in in Nehemiah chapter number 9. Please stand with me. As we read the word this morning, we're going to read the first four verses. Nehemiah chapter number 9, beginning in verse number 1, the Bible says, Now on the twentieth and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place. And they read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day. And another fourth part they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Then stood up on the stairs the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chananiah, and cried with a loud voice unto the Lord their God. This morning, pastor is going to come and bring a message entitled, The God Who Builds Through His Compassion. Well, this morning I was waking up, and uh, how many of you know that moment between the dream and between being fully awake, and you're just in that groggy state? How many of you know what I'm talking about? You're not awake, but you're not really asleep. And in that state this morning, I begin to smell the incredible aromas of a freshly made breakfast. There's very few things as good in this world as waking up to a breakfast that smells really, really good. How many of you would say amen to that one, all right? And uh, so I'm there, and I'm kind of waking up, and as I'm waking up, my wife walks into the bedroom literally with a plate of food, breakfast, and she served me breakfast in bed. It was like so awesome. I began to eat it. It was so good. And as I'm eating this thing this morning, I'm having a great time. And uh, there's, I'll just be honest, man, something in my heart was like, I want to do something for her because of her doing this for me. And I was so excited, but it was Sunday morning and I was busy and I didn't do anything for her. (laughs) How many of you have ever been there before, you know? Well, what we're talking about today is this idea of the reality that what we do for God flows out of a remembrance, an acknowledgement of what God has done for us. So our theme this morning is simply this. I think they're going to throw it on the screens. It's an acknowledging God's compassion that activates our commitment. Let me give you some back uh, drop on this story for those that are kind of catching up with us a little bit. A couple chapters ago in Nehemiah, Ezra the priest stands up and he begins to preach. They hold a revival meeting of sorts, a spiritual awakening meeting. Now, this meeting did not happen at the temple. In fact, it happened down at the Watergate, a place where just work happened. It was an everyday type of place. And the entire city there of Jerusalem gathered together and began to hear the word of the Lord preached, not for like an hour, but two or three, but literally for six or seven hours, the word of the Lord was proclaimed. Well, those who are hearing God's word for the first time in many, many years they start to get broken and they start to get filled with sorrow they're like oh no this is awful we haven't been doing this right and so Ezra stands up and he says hey 
don't be sorry. Don't sorrow. He stands up and he says, the joy of the Lord is what is your strength. And and literally, over the next seven days, they throw a big party. They have a celebration. They, rem- they just celebrate the fact that God had delivered them out of Egypt and now from Babylon. And so they're excited. They're celebrating for several days. And, and then that brings us to chapter number 9, verses 1 through 4, that Pastor Nick just read a moment ago, where they begin to make an agreement with God. You see, now they realize, wait a second, God has been doing so much for us. They've been worshiping him in song. They've been celebrating his greatness. And in chapters number 9 and chapters number 10, now you're going to see the outflow of what the children of Israel do in response to God's goodness. Why? Because it's in acknowledging God's compassion as we acknowledge his goodness. That is what activates our commitment. If you're here today and you are trying to make a commitment to God, if you're here today trying to do something for God, trying to manufacture it and work it up, and you're trying to do it in your own strength, I'm just going to let you in on something. It's going to fail you every single time. Because God ultimately wants to do something through you, and that takes place not by trying really hard to make these things happen. It happens as we acknowledge and we fix our eyes on Christ, and as we notice and we see all the good things that he's done for us, that is what causes our heart to melt to a place where we want to commit and dedicate our lives to him. The scriptures tell us we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. It's the, it's the goodness of God, the Bible says, that brings us to repentance. The Bible says it's the love of Christ that constrains us. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, you'll see that for the believer, the way that good works, the way that our commitment and dedication to God actually works in the spiritual realm is not by trying harder, not by committing more, not by dedicating and pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and just making it happen. And I realize there's a whole lot of fancy preaching out there that'll tell you, well, just try a little harder and don't quit and don't give up and you can make it happen and, and somehow, some way, if you just try hard enough, it'll all come together. And I want to say to you, based on the authority of the Word of God, the way the Spirit of God works in and through a life is as we fix, on, fix our sight on God, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. It's God's work. It's His strength. It's His power working through us. And as we abide in Him, as we enjoy His presence, as we fix our eyes on Him, that is what melts our heart. That is what changes our soul. That is what gives us the strength, the grace, the power that we need to do what God has called us to do, to commit and dedicate our lives to Him and Him alone. So we see this agreement beginning to take place. Now notice verse number three. At the end it says another fourth part, they confessed. Notice this, and worshiped the Lord their God. When you really get a glimpse of where you're at in your life, whether it be in a place of brokenness or whether it be in a place of health, the reality is God brings us to places of recognizing our brokenness, not so we can get obsessed with our sin. 
not so we can get obsessed with our brokenness. He gives us a glimpse of the ugliness of it. He gives us a glimpse of the brokenness of it. He gives us a glimpse of how messy it is so that we will be reminded of the reality that is only Christ and the finished work of what he has done on the cross that can ultimately save and heal us. And so we see in this passage, rather than obsessing with their sin, it causes them now to worship God, to fix their eyes on him, to fixate on who he is, and literally they begin once again to afresh and anew begin to worship God that is what this confession and repentance did it caused them to fix their eyes on Jesus one theologian said it this way obsession with sin whether by indulging in it and most of us would agree indulging in sin uh, obsessing with sin uh, that's an unhealthy thing here's what he says obsession with sin whether indulging in it or abstaining from it there are christians who obsess with abstaining from sin and here's what this theologian saying obsession with sin whether indulging in it or abstaining from it steals the focus from christ and it is fixing our eyes on christ and him alone that is the ultimate course of victory in the christian life we do not gain victory in the christian life by obsessing on how we're doing wrong and obsessing with sin and trying to do our best to stop doing it no we get victory in the christian life by turning our attention from that and just getting all of our focus fixed on christ recognizing that in him and him alone is our victory in him and him alone is where we find success and so here's what we're seeing in this passage they move from fixating on sin fixating on brokenness and they get their eyes fixed on God, who is the author and the finisher of their faith. You see, it is God that worketh in you. The Apostle Paul tells us under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It's God that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That is, it is the Spirit of God that gives us the desire to do what's right. It is also the Spirit of God that empowers us to do what's right. It's only by focusing and obsessing with Him, abiding with Him, experiencing Him, enjoying Him, that ultimately is how we get victory over sin, not by obsessing with it. So if you're here today and you're trying to get victory over sin by obsessing over it and confessing it and repenting, but you never bounce it toward Christ, I'm going to tell you, you're going to live in a cycle of defeat your entire Christian experience. The Bible tells us to fix our eyes on him. So you see, the nature of spiritual renewal is not based on emotion. When we talk about commitment to Christ, when we talk about dedication to him, this doesn't happen because we get really excited. Oh man, you know, I read a book and it just pumped me up. I went to a conference and it pumped me up. I, I, I went to a revival meeting and it made me really feel good. And I, I want to say this, that, that the nature of spiritual renewal and revival is not based on the emotion of a moment, but rather on the faithfulness of God over time. This is big. I want you to start noticing. In, in verses number five, all the way through the end of the chapter, what we're going to see is that the children of Israel start obsessing, not over their sin. They start obsessing with all that who God is. So let me give you some excerpts. You can read it for yourself. Uh, because of sake of time, we're not going to be able to hit every verse. But let's just start reading some of them. Uh, notice what the Bible says here uh, in uh, verse number uh, 19. It says right here, it says, uh, it says oh, I want to go to, I go to the verse before this, all right? And so let's start in verse number 6. Chapter number 9, verse number 6. Thou, even thou, O Lord, alone, hast made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. So here, starting in verse number 6, the children of Israel, like 
the God who delivered us from Egypt is the God that created us. He created the heavens and the heavens of heavens. Then it goes on to say, not only did he create everything, but the Bible says he is the sustainer of all things. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. As you keep reading, they're going to talk about how God delivered them there from Egypt, how he sustained them in the wilderness. And you're going to see here now in verse number 19, he says, yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsook them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire of night to show them light and the way wherein they must go. Now skip down to verse number 30. You're going to see, yet many years did thou forbear them. They're saying, God, you had so much patience on us. You forbear. We turned on you again and again. And God, you were so patient again and again. He goes on in verse number 30. He says, by the spirit and the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, gavest them thine into the hand of the lands. Verse 31, nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them nor forsake them. For thou art a gracious and merciful God. And so verse after verse, they are just celebrating the goodness of God. They are worshiping God for his mercy and for his grace. They're getting fixated on all that God is. Notice verse number 32. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God who keep his covenant and mercy. God, you made a covenant with us. We couldn't keep our covenants to you, but you were faithful to keep your covenant with us. You were merciful to us when we did not deserve it. And so he goes on to say, he says, let not all the trouble seem little before thee that hath come upon us. Verse number 38, and because of all this, the Bible says, we make a sure covenant and write it and write it and our princes, Levites and priests do seal And so all throughout this passage, basically, we're going to see this long, massive list of everything the children of Israel acknowledge, everything they remember. Yes, they're going to talk about their confession and repentance for one verse, and then they go on for dozens of verses talking about just how awesome and great and obsessed they are with God, because this is what they understood. It is obsessing with God that ultimately gives you victory over sin. The harder you try to abstain and push and in your flesh quit, the more you become wrapped up in it, the more you become obsessed with it, and it literally draws you in. It is as you get your mind and heart and eyes fixed on Jesus and Jesus Christ alone that ultimately gives one victory in the Christian life, which leads us now to verse number 10. And I mean, chapter number 10. So now they get to chapter number 10 and they have just been celebrating for two chapters. They've been partying about how great God is. They've been worshiping him. Now for an entire chapter nine, they've been articulating with their words and with their songs how great he is. He's the creator, not just the creator of us, but the creator of the heavens and the heavens of heavens. He's sustained us. He's been merciful to us when we turned our back on him. When we failed, he never let us go. He was always faithful. He was always gracious. He never left them. He never forsook them. And he's just going, they're just going on and on about the greatness of God. And finally, their heart just comes to a place like, okay, man, we've got we've to commit something to this great God. And this is an important thing to note. If you try to make a commitment to God out of the flesh, or out of emotion, or out of ego, or pride, it will fail you every single time. You see, some people, they're like, oh, I'm going to do something for God because they got real emotional. 
They, they, they heard something or they felt something and, and they made a decision out of emotion. Sometimes people make a decision because, well, if I, if I do this, then pastor will see it or this person at the church will see it and, and they'll give me a pat on the back. Or, or for some people, they make these commitments just to bolster their self-identity. They want to see themselves as a good person. They want to view themselves as, as good people. And so the reason they're doing and making commitments and dedicating themselves to the right thing is not ultimately for the glory of Christ. They're doing it to prop up their own self-identity. They're literally doing it for themselves. And there's a thousand reasons smaller than the glory of God to make commitments and dedication to the Lord. But a lot of those motivations will ultimately end up sabotaging the very relationship with Christ that one so desperately desires. And yet that's not what we see in this passage. This is not a group of people that's making dedication based on ego or pride. They're not making these decisions based on emotion of the moment. These decisions, this commitment, this oath that they're about to make in chapter number 10 is made because they have been obsessing for weeks about the greatness, the goodness, the mercy, and grace of God. And after a couple weeks of this, their heart just can't stand it anymore. Like, it just starts to overflow, and finally they're like, okay, we got, we're dedicating our heart. This is, we can't do this anymore. God's been so good to us. They want to respond back to God. And so that's what takes place. So in chapters number 10, we're going to see three commitments to God that are in response to God's goodness to them. Three specific responses that you're going to find in chapters number 10. So... In chapters number 10, verses 1 through 28, is a list of all the names of people who gather to participate in this covenant. So we won't read all the names. If you want to read them, feel free to read them later. But in verses number 1 down to verse number 28, they're like, this is what we're doing, and this is what we're doing. And then we get down to verse number 29. Notice what the Bible says in chapter number 10, verse 29. So they clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath. Notice this. To walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his judgments and his statutes. And so now coming into chapters number 10, they're saying we are so overwhelmed with all that God's done for us, we are going to respond back to him. And so they begin to do that. Notice the first commitment they make in verse number 30. It says in verse 30, that... We would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. Sounds like a strange oath, but this is what they said. Basically, we're not going to allow our daughters to marry the sons of a people of a different nationality. Now, at first, that sounds a little racist, but that's not what's happening here, okay? God doesn't, God, there's no place in the Bible where God's against interracial marrying. What's being spoken of here is this idea of 2 Corinthians chapter number 6, verse 14, that we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's what's happening here. And so they are saying, we are not going to let our daughters marry men who are unbelievers. You see, why, why would that be important? You could only imagine here they are worshiping the true and living God. They go over to a relative's house for some uh, special event, and all of a sudden, you know, uh, the girl's parents are like, hey, let's pray to, you know, the Messiah. Let's pray to the coming Messiah. Let's pray to the true God. And all of a sudden over here, they're like, oh, no, we got to come over here. Let's all bow down to Baal right now. And it just started to get confusing. And what began to happen is there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of uh, moving away from worshiping the true and living God because of this marrying that happened between 
between believers and unbelievers. And I, I just want to pause right here. If you're here today and maybe you're dating or whatever the case may be, you're not married, I want to encourage you with this reality. Man, be very, very careful when it comes to the type of people that you date and who you plan to marry. It gets very, very difficult when you enter into a marriage-type relationship with somebody that does not hold to very strong Christian values, that doesn't hold to motivations being the glory of Christ. You will sow seeds into your future that will make life really difficult at seasons in your life. And so I want to encourage you to be, be a careful of that in the dating scene. Be careful of that when you enter into marriage. And that's what's being referred to here. It's a, not to be unequally yoked. I've heard girls say, well, you know, he's a good guy and we're going to get married and then I'll, I'll, I'll convert him. <laughs> it usually just doesn't work that way. They call it missionary dating, all right? <laughs> not, always a, not always an effective form of evangelism. But I think it's something that's wise to take note. And so here's the first commitment. They literally make a commitment to the family. That's, that's the first commitment, a commitment to the family. They're saying, hey, we want to help our families be strong spiritually. We want to set them up for spiritual success. We want to do what we can do to make sure that our families are walking in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so they make this commitment to their family. They commit to development of their families. Why? Because God had been a great father to them. They then want to respond in modeling being a good father, being good parents there to their kids. They commit to the family. Um, One of our founding forefathers, uh, Patrick Henry, Uh, Some of you are familiar with his famous quote that most people are aware of where he said, give me liberty or give me death. And so they said, okay. (laughs) They killed him. Death, you've got it. You want it? That's great. Now, here's something that most people don't know. Patrick Henry in his journals wrote this toward the end of his life. He said this, this is all the inheritance I give to my dear family. Patrick, what what are you going to give to your kids? He said, the religion of Christ, which will make them rich indeed. Patrick Henry simply said this. He said, you know what? If I could give my kids anything, riches, money, resources, properties, lands. He said, the most important thing I could give them is a deep relationship with God. And I want to encourage you dads here today. Make a commitment. Why? Because you want kids to, you want people in the church to be impressed with your kids when they come to church? No, that's not the right motivation. That'd be ego. Not so everybody can look at you and say, whoo, man, you must be super awesome parent. No. As you obsess with all that God has been for you as a heavenly father, as you obsess with how gracious and how merciful and how kind and how blessed he's been on your behalf, as you obsess with that, as you fixate on it and focus on it, it should change your heart. It should melt your heart to a place where you're like, I want to be that for my kids. I want my, I want my children and my grandchildren. I want my friends and people around me. I want, them to, I want them to experience that too. I want them to see Christ through me and they make a commitment to the family. Psalms 127 says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that buildeth. You, you can try every philosophy, you can try every theory, you can try everything under the sun, but unless you're in an abiding relationship with Christ, experiencing him and enjoying him on a regular basis and allowing his spirit to change you on the inside and then allow him to flow through you and how you work with your kids and with your grandkids and with your spouse, unless that happens, they labor in vain that try to build. And so they make a commitment to the family. Let's keep reading verse number 31. 
And if the people of the land bring ware or any victuals on the Sabbath day to sell, that is, they're going to try selling things on a, on a Sabbath day, we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So here's the second commitment that they make to God. They've been obsessing with God. They've been celebrating his greatness. They've been worshiping him. They've been enjoying him. And now it's changing their heart. Now it's causing them to want to do something back in response. It's changing the fiber of their very soul. And so they say, here's the second commitment. We're making a commitment to the Sabbath. We're, not gonna, we're gonna do what the scriptures say. We're gonna do what the law says here. We're on the Sabbath day. We're gonna reserve that. We're gonna create margin in our schedule for God, for focusing on him. Now, those of you who've been around here a while, you realize that we are no longer under the old covenant, all right? We're no longer under the law. Uh, the Bible teaches very clearly that in Christ, we are now under a new covenant. However, I will say this. The, Jesus teaches us in Matthew that those people who have the Spirit of God are empowered to do that even above and beyond what the law would demand. Case in point, uh, the law says, you know, uh, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery, the law says. Well, the Spirit of Christ says here, hey, he says, not only are you not to commit adultery, but by God's grace and his Spirit working through you, he says, you don't even have to look unto a woman to lust after him. He says, that's the grace, that's the empowerment that God gives in that arena. You say, you know, the Old Testament, the covenant says, thou shalt not murder, you know? Well, the new covenant says, hey, with the Spirit of grace, I can give you the strength and power. I can make it so you don't even hate your brother. You see, God's grace does more than the law demands. And with the Spirit of Christ, you can be more, do more than what you could ever do in your own strength, in your own power, under the law. And so we see here in this passage, not only do we see a commitment to the family, but we see a commitment to uh, the Sabbath. We, We see a commitment to margin. We see a commitment to making space for a relationship with God. There are people, maybe even in this room, and you are so busy You don't even have time for a relationship with Christ. You don't have time to abide with him. You don't have time to enjoy his presence. You don't have time to experiencing him on a daily basis or to practice his presence. You have so jam-packed your schedule with a thousand things less important than God. And before you know it, the margin in your life is completely gone. And these people are saying, that was us. We were getting so busy, so distracted with a thousand things less important than God. And they said, no more. Because of everything God's done to us, we commit for a Sabbath. We are creating margin in our lives to worship God, to enjoy him, to experience him, to worship him, not just privately, but even collectively as a people. We are creating margin to come together as God's people worship him. I want to remind you, when you get obsessed with who God is, one of the ramifications, one of the fruits is that all of a sudden you, have a, you, you prioritize coming together with God's people and worshiping the Lord corporately. You create margin in your schedule to be here. The fact that you're here this morning is an evidence of the reality that you've got a, a big view of God. You're seeing what God's done for you and it's causing you to want to respond by worshiping him collectively and corporately with other believers. You're creating margin. But I want to say this. There are many people in the day and age in which we live, they are allowing good things to take the place of the best things. And rather than getting obsessed with all that God's done for them, they get distracted by this activity, this sport, this hobby, this money-making endeavor, this relationship. 
And all of a sudden, before they know it, there's a thousand things in their life, not bad things, but a thousand things that are smothering their relationship with God. And so what these people do is say, hey, God's been too good to us. He's been too gracious. He's been too merciful. He's been too kind. And so we're making a commitment. We're committing to our families. We're committing to margin for time with God, both privately and corporately. That's what they're they're committing to. I I was reading a book recently. It said this, busyness is the disease of the new millennium. Busyness. It's a disease that's literally destroying our soul. The author went on to say, margin is its cure. I know that in American culture, it is in vogue to be busy. Like, it's almost a badge of honor these days. I'm just so busy. I gotta be this, I gotta be that. And everybody's supposed to go around you and say, oh, you're so amazing. (laughs) Wow, I wish I could be as busy as you. It's It's like an ego thing. I understand we're busy. I'm busy, you're busy, we're all busy. But here's the point. The point is, we want to be careful that we are not so busy that we are crowding out the most important things. That's what the purpose of this is. If you're at a place and you no longer have margin to experience and enjoy the presence of God, you're too busy. If it's been a long time since you've just been able to relish and worship God and practice his presence, I want to remind you of this. You're you're probably just a little too busy. And If we're going to say yes to more important things, we've got to come to a place where we're saying no to less important things. So we see a commitment to the family. We see in verse 31 a commitment here to margin and and rest, this Sabbath idea. Let's read verses 32. Also, we made ordinances for us to charge ourselves yearly with a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Okay, we're going to make room in our schedule. We're going to Budget it to be able to give to the house of God. Verse 33, for the showbread, for the continual meat offering, and for the continual burnt offerings, and the Sabbaths, and the new moons, for the set feast, and for the holy things, and for the sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of God. And so basically they're saying, hey, we're going to budget to make sure that the house of God needs what it it needs to have to do what it needs to do. Go on to verse number 34. Cast lots among the priests and the Levites and the people for the wood offerings to bring it in the house of our God after the houses of our fathers at the time appointed year by year to burn upon the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. And so bring, notice this, the first fruits of our ground to bring the first fruits of all the fruit of our trees year by year into the house of the Lord. Also the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstlings of our herd and of our flocks, to bring the house of our God unto the priests that minister unto the house of our God. Verse 37, that we should bring the firstfruits of our dough and our offerings and the first of all manner of trees, of wine, of oil, unto the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God. And the tithes of our ground into the Levites, that the same Levites might have the tithes in all the cities of our tillage. And here in this passage, we see uh, just a commitment, lastly, not just to the family. We see not just a commitment to margin and rest, but we see they commit to generosity. Now, uh, when I was in college and seminary, they taught something called the law of proportionality. How much is something emphasized? I think it's interesting that they give one verse to emphasize their commitment to the family. They give one verse emphasizing their commitment here to margin, rest, to Sabbath. And they give six verses to emphasize their their commitment to radical, extravagant generosity. 
And I want to remind us of this. One of the marks, one of the fruits of somebody who has been really gripped by grace is that there is an extravagant generosity that exudes from their being. There's a lot of people running around. Hey, I'm so, man, I'm thankful for the gospel of Christ, man. God's grace is so amazing. It's so awesome. I'm so gripped by Christ. I don't have to give nothing. It's all mine. Ha! Wow. God's grace has really got a hold of you. And what you're going to see throughout the scriptures is the more God's grace, the more you're obsessed with it, the more God's grace is really gripping you, uh, the more there is a propensity to radical generosity and extravagant giving. You will see it all throughout the New Testament. It is one of the marks, it is one of the fruits of a people who really understand God's goodness to them. Make the statement. Spiritual vitality and radical generosity go hand in hand. If you don't have one, you probably don't have the other. You're going to see this in Old Testament narratives. You're going to see this in New Testament expression. There is a a sense of radical generosity in those who have truly been gripped by the grace of God. Let me read a New Testament passage to you, lest we think this is just an Old Testament concept. 2 Corinthians chapter number 9, verse number 6 says this. He which soweth sparingly shall also reap sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. I have seen this played out more times than I can possibly even count in my own personal experience. Now, this principle applies to our time, our talents, but it also applies to our resources as well. There is a place when the grace of God has gripped our hearts, when the grace of God has truly gripped our lives, that we are given to radical, extravagant generosity. That is, we have a very loose hold on those things that God entrusts to us. Now, I want to make this very clear, because if we don't properly um, interpret this passage, we might get the idea that what's happening here is that somehow in the spiritual realm, God likes people who give more than people who don't. And I want to say this, this promise is in the physical realm. In the spiritual realm, Ephesians chapter number one, we have already been blessed with every blessing there is in Christ, okay? So just like Proverbs was speaking on a physical realm, that sowing and reaping principles, that as we sow, so will a man reap. In the physical realm, God gives gives certain promises that, hey, I created the world, this is how I created the world to work, and when you fall in line with how I created the world to work, these are some of the things that'll happen. This is the spirit of this particular passage. It is not guaranteeing that you're going to be driving around in a Lamborghini in a little McMansion, you know, with more money than you know what to do with if you'll just put a dollar in the offering plate, all right? That is not the spirit of this particular passage. But what it is saying is simply this, that when we have been gripped with all the generosity that Jesus gave to us, when he died on the cross on our behalf, and when that really grips our soul, what happens now is there is an overflow in extravagant generosity. Now, all of a sudden, it's not what can I, what do I have to give? Now, it's all like, okay, well, what am I keeping? You know, because God has been so good to me. There's a sowing and reaping principle. There was a missionary by the name of Del Tar. He served uh, 14 years in West Africa. And uh, he served in a part of Africa that was known as the Sahel. It's a stretch of the savanna more than 4,000 miles wide. And it finds itself just south of the uh, Sahara Desert. 
In the Sahel, all the moisture comes during four months of the year, May, June, July, and August. And for the rest of the year, it is just incredibly dry. The ground begins to get all dried up. It gets, begins to crack. In fact, uh, the winds of the Sahara pick up the dust and throw it thousands of feet into the air. And then it comes slowly drifting across West Africa as a, as a fine grit. The year's food must be grown completely in those four months. And for those people who live in those parts of the world, in those four months, they grow all their food, they eat the food, and then they've got to make the food last for the remainder eight months. And, and so as you can imagine, during those fifth and sixth months, it's a huge uh, feast. It's celebration. They're eating like three meals a day. Uh, they grow something in that part of the world called sorghum or milo in small fields uh, during the fruitful months of the years. And, and uh, it's kind of like a, a cream of wheat that they would roll up into a ball and then they would dip it in some sauces. And so, man, when they first get the harvest comes in, they are eating like kings. They're enjoying it. They're able to sleep well because the food has filled their bellies. And as the months go on, it gets a little bit more difficult, you know. Uh, they start going from three meals a day, and then all of a sudden, you're coming into January, they're down to like two meals a day. As you move into February, they're down to one, and, and oftentimes into March, because the rains have not, have not yet come, there's, there's no food for them to eat, and so they're doing what they can. The kids are getting extremely hungry. They're, they're starving. They're, they're starting to get sick, and it's just it's a, it's a, whole, a horrible, uh, rough thing that they're going through during those seasons and inevitably during that time toward the end of that season where they don't have food inevitably a a little seven or eight year old boy will run into his father's house and say dad dad I I found something and and the dad's like what what are you talking about he said out there in the little shack with the barn where we keep the uh, uh, the feed he said I found a bag and in the bag it's full of grain dad we're going to be able to we're going to eat really really good tonight Dad's face kind of drops, and he says, son, he said, we can't, we can't eat that grain. Little oh boy, he says, well, well, why not? And the dad says, you don't understand, that, that's the grain that we have to use for planting season. Little oh boy says, but dad, I'm so hungry. And he said, son, if you don't realize, if we don't save that grain for harvest, we're going to starve and die. And within a few weeks, that dad takes that bag of grain and with his son watching, he begins to reach in that bag, pulling out that grain that they could use to make mills with. And with his starving son standing in the distance, he begins to take that seed and just throw it into the dirt. That little boy is standing there bewildered. What in the world is dad doing? It doesn't make any sense. Why is he taking what we desperately, desperately need and just throwing it away? But that dad understands something that the son doesn't yet understand. And that is the only way they could possibly survive is not by hoarding the seed, but rather by giving it away. And so they take the whole bag of seed and they just literally throw it to the wind. Within weeks, though, the son starts to get a lesson as he begins to realize that that seed that was sown in that moment now bears a harvest that is far, far, far greater than anything they sowed in that moment. Which reminds us here of the passage in 2 Corinthians, this I say, they which sow sparingly reap sparingly. 
but they that sow bountifully reap bountifully. I don't have time to get into all the stories of how I and my family have seen this played out again and again and again, but I will simply say this. I have tried and tried and tried to outgive God, and I'm just going to tell you, it seems like the more I shovel out, the more God shovels in. Because our God is a God of the harvest. And this doesn't always mean that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. But I will promise you this. That when you enter into this harvest economy, God says to you, he says, he says, I will provide all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You say it doesn't make any sense. Throwing it out, giving it away. I would not have money for this. I wouldn't be able to pay for that. It doesn't make any sense. Here's the difference though. When you sow it into that realm, what you begin to realize is all of us sudden you enter in from the physical economy and you now step into God's economy and God's economy works on promises and principles that don't work in the physical realm and all of a sudden as we begin to plant as we begin to sow we begin to activate that spiritual economy and begin to experience things that are only possible in a supernatural realm and they that sow bountifully reap bountifully and it's not always financially and it's not always monetarily, but I can promise you this. He will always take care of you. And that is a promise you can take to the bank every single day. John Bunyan, he, he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. How many of you have heard this one before? The Pilgrim's Progress, you've heard of this book? Uh, he, he penned this, a little poem. He said, a man there was, they called him mad. But the more he gave, the more he had. You see, John Bunyan was kind of ascribing what was mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter number 9. And that's this idea that our God is faithful. And when he invites us into radical, extravagant generosity, he does not invite us into that to leave us high and dry. He invites us into it to show himself to be bigger and stronger and greater than we could ever imagine him to be. And I realize there's some folks in here right now and you're like, you don't understand, Pastor. If I were to get extravagant in my generosity, if I were to start giving away, God, uh, there would be nothing left. And I, I just wanna, I wanna say to you this. This is in those moments where you can learn to trust God in greater ways. To trust him. To be able to step back and say, God, show yourself Reveal yourself to me in greater ways. I know throughout our lives as we've had the opportunity to trust God, it, it's, it's, it's somewhat easy to trust him when it comes to one area of your life or another. There's just something about trusting him in the financial realm that does something to one's heart. Here's what the Bible says. Where your treasure is, there will your what? Your heart be also. Wherever you place your treasure, your heart always follows. It's not really a financial issue at the end of the day. Our Bible says God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Man, God's been so good to our church. He's provided. It's a wonderful thing. It's great to be a part of. At the end of the day, it's not a financial thing, but it really is a faith thing. And God uses this in incredible ways to grow our faith. Some of the most mature Christians that I know are mature because they've, had, they've stretched their faith time and time again and have been able to see a connection between their generosity and how God has used that faith to grow them and their dependence upon God. It's not necessarily a faith thing. It's not necessarily a finance thing. It's, it's a faith thing. 
Now, as we conclude, I want to say this, constantly acknowledging God's compassion, constantly acknowledging that he's given us all his riches on Christ's behalf, that is what stirs our commitment to him. Constantly acknowledging God's compassion, that's what continually activates our commitment. So here's my question as we end. How has God's compassion towards you activated your commitment toward him? What are the marks? What are the expressions? What are the practical ramifications of the fact that you've been gripped by grace? See, we are, we are, we are a people of self-deception. And I am, and you are, and we want to convince ourselves that we are just doing awesome. And yet sometimes God allows us to get a glimpse of the fruit that's coming through our lives to really reveal to us where our heart really is. And so I want to ask you, is there a commitment to family? Is there a commitment to, to Sabbath rest and margin in your life? To gathering together corporately with God's people. Is that a priority for you? Or is it, well, when it works on the schedule, we're there. But when there's, well, there's other things, that's, then we're there, you know? Is there, is there a high priority placed upon private and corporate experience of God? And then is there a commitment to radical generosity, extravagant giving to those around you, to those in need, to those that are poor, to those that are trying to accomplish the work of the Lord in foreign mission fields and missionaries and mission endeavors and church ministries that are pushing the advancement of God forward in a city and a community? How is God using and using and is he working in your heart to, to give you that heart that holds the things that he's entrusted to you very lightly. You say, how do we do it? By making ourselves give and making ourselves love our families and making ourselves go to church and making ourselves, you know, spend time with God. No, that's never going to do it. It's by constantly acknowledging God's compassion, constantly acknowledge God's goodness, constantly acknowledging God's grace, constantly experiencing God's mercy and enjoying it and experiencing it and basking in it. That eventually melts the heart to a place where the only response you can give is like, God, I can't help but commit. I can't help but dedicate my heart to the Lord. It's reactive. We're responding to the grace and mercy of God. So that's where we start. We start by enjoying him afresh and anew. How is God's compassion towards you activating your commitment and dedication toward him? Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.